here in Washington as well, you know, the, the conversation about nuclear uh, is noticeably different than it was a couple of years ago. There's a much stronger recognition of the key role that the existing nuclear fleet of the United States plays, and there's a much more optimism about nuclear innovation. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we are very pleased to welcome to the show, Lazo Vero. Lazo is Vice President for Global Business Environment at Shell, where he leads macroeconomics, energy scenarios, climate policy, and geopolitical analysis to help the company navigate the energy transition. Lazo talks with Joseph Mikat, Director of the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program, about the scenarios developed by the Shell team and how they relate to the current energy, geopolitical, and climate concerns, including the continuing COVID-19 impacts to the global economy and the implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on energy markets and on energy security considerations. Here's Lazo and Joseph for this very timely discussion. Laszlo, I'm very pleased that you've joined us here today for the CSIS Energy Podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. Amongst all of the experts in the world who think about forecasting the energy system over the next decades and century, you're in a very privileged position working on the Shell Scenarios team. For our audience members who may not be familiar, what does the Shell Scenarios team do? And how do your products differentiate themselves from other forecasts of the energy system? So Shell uh, pioneered scenario-based strategic analysis half a century ago. So the Shell scenario team was set up in the late 60s. Its uh, legendary historical success was predicting uh, that the 1960s arrangements when essentially seven gigantic uh, oil companies all associated with the Western world were dominating the global energy system and the Shell scenario team considered this to be an unsustainable arrangement. Now, they did not exactly predict the Yom Kippur War and they, they did not exactly predict how the events will unfold, but they did design a scenario which was actually remarkably similar to what was unfolding as with the oil price shocks of the 1970s. Uh, and that enabled the company at that time to hit the ground running and adjust uh, its strategic decisions uh, very rapidly. So the mission is still unchanged. Our job is to reflect on futures in plural, because if you are interested in the future, is singular, only God knows the answer. So our job is to reflect future on futures. This is a team of 37 professionals with personal backgrounds ranging from theoretical physics to military history, with a hardcore of energy experts, of course, doing the energy system modeling, but we also reflect on social and cultural and geopolitical factors shaping uh, the, uh, the future of the energy system. And we are sitting in the Shell strategy team and we very strongly interact with the other parts of Shell strategy formulation. In the case of a large energy company, strategy is very largely about capital allocation. So Shell has an investment capital budget of around $25 billion per year. And how do you invest? How do you allocate this investment across technologies and across regions will determine your strategic positioning. And our analysis informs uh, as uh, the strategy formulation process and feeds uh, into the investment decisions. When one goes to look up forecasts of the future energy system and how it will affect the climate, you find different cases, right? So maybe there's a high technology case or a low technology case, high population growth, low population growth. The scenarios that your team builds and publishes are quite different. So when I was preparing for our conversation today and reading, reading the last scenario report, you give your scenarios names, which sort of reflect the narrative that occurs in each of those. Maybe you could spend a minute helping our audience understand islands, waves, and sky 
in terms of both like climate outcomes as well as the the technological and political story that underlines each of those. So the the most recent edition of the Shell scenarios reflected on how the world uh, recovers from the coronavirus epidemic. Now the the coronavirus triggered a once in a lifetime shock. So we all remember our life before the coronavirus, during the lockdowns and after the coronavirus. I belong to that Eastern European generation. I was exactly 18 when the Berlin War came down, and I still tell stories, stories of my kids, of how was the life before, how was the life during the shock and after. I think our generation, we will tell stories to our kids and our grandchildren about 2020. So the three scenarios try to capture what is the key theme as the world grows out from the coronavirus crisis and how that affects the energy system. And um, not in the order of likelihood or not in the order of importance, I just have to pick with, start with one of them. Uh, so, uh, so one scenario, we called it waves, where the key theme is wealth. The key theme is consumption and wealth creation. So basically, this is a world where people were fed up by being locked into their rooms, They want to go out, they want to spend money, and they want to enjoy life. So this is a world of driven by high consumption expenditure. Now that high consumption expenditure drives up energy consumption. Renewables and clean technologies are doing well in this world because wealth creation is very much part of, you know, Tesla is a fantastic wealth creation story. So clean technology is doing well, but the share volume of energy consumption is so high that clean technology struggles to keep up. Moreover, in this wave-style world, focusing on wealth creation, carbon capture and storage is falling behind because for certain clean technologies like wind, solar, electric cars, you can have a wealth creation story in addition to its climate benefits. But for carbon capture and storage, the sad fact is that a facility with carbon capture and storage will always be more expensive than the same facility without it. So that's a technology that requires conscious policy support for climate policy. And in the wave scenario, this is lagging behind. And the combination of these factors lead to breaching the Paris objectives and wave converges to around 2.3 degrees warming. Then we designed another scenario, which we called islands, that this is our islands is a word which is where the key theme is security. So this is a world where people focus on enhancing security in the world. This is a world where governments are much more powerful than they used to be. Don't forget that in 2020, 2021, governments were implementing restrictions which were unprecedented in peacetime. So the modern organized states showed its power. And also financially, governments are mobilized amounts of money for fiscal spending, which are again unprecedented in peacetime. We have seen this very strong national focus, disputes about medical equipment, disputes about vaccines, and all of this leads to a world which is more inward-looking, more security-focused. Now, islands is also a climate policy failure, but for different reasons. Total energy consumption in islands is lower than in waves because the breakdown of globalization has a major macroeconomic impact, and with lower GDP growth, energy consumption is lower. But despite the lower energy consumption level, the energy system is more carbon intensive. Around 30% of global carbon dioxide emissions are coming from domestic coal. So like South African coal mined and burned in South Africa, or Chinese coal mined and burned in China. And this domestic coal, this is a climate problem, but a geopolitical security solution. And a word very strongly focusing on security, it's very difficult to get rid of this component. 
And the other thing that is happening in the island scenario is renewables and other clean technologies become more expensive because as of currently, renewables very strongly benefit from, glo from global supply chains. The most transformative, most radically improving uh, low carbon technology is solar PV. Now, the success of solar PV is the success of Chinese manufacturing. Even in the case of wind, a modern wind turbine has components from around 30, on, on average 32 different countries. And as you have a breakdown of globalization and the breakdown of interconnected global supply chains, and everyone, every country wants to manufacture their own electric car batteries, that basically means a more expensive transition. So islands is also a climate policy failure, it converges towards a 2.5 degrees warming, warming at the end of the century. Then we also designed a, a scenario which we call Sky, where the overarching theme is health and sustainability. Where it, it, this is a state of the world where the conclusion that people draw from the coronavirus epidemic is that our modern society proved to be not resilient to, a natural, to natural hazards. Mm -hmm. It was not resilient to a, the biological hazard of, the, of a new virus. And it's almost certainly not resilient to the natural hazard of climate impacts. So this is a world where society essentially doubles down on the effort for sustainability, where governments couple their coronavirus recovery efforts with clean energy. So there's a very strong green recovery component as, uh, in the sky scenario. It is also a scenario which has a, a cooperative approach to climate policy and all hands to the deck approach. So essentially what the sky scenario emphasizes is that large-scale early investments into already mature low-carbon technologies and accelerated innovation into new low-carbon technologies, these are not alternative strategies. You cannot choose between these two. Given that it is cumulative emissions that matter, you have to throw the kitchen sink in, in already in the first decade with mature technologies, so wind, solar, uh, electric cars, all pedal to the metal, and there are also policy efforts uh, to keep nuclear in the game, uh, policy efforts uh, to enhance energy efficiency. But at the same time, it also recognizes that uh, around 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide emissions are coming from hard to abate sectors, where the currently major technologies would hit the wall. So it also accelerates innovation and accelerates early deployment of those technologies. Now, Sky is a 1.5 trajectory, but it is an overshoot trajectory. So it is a it is a trajectory where the given the rigidities of the energy system, the early carbon dioxide emissions are not uh, re reductions are not sufficient for a no overshoot 1.5 trajectory. But with the subsequent scale up of carbon removal technologies, the humanity corrects back to a 1.5 stabilization. Since these scenarios were published, there's been quite a shock to the energy system and the geopolitics of energy. Earlier this year, Russia invaded Ukraine, and that has driven both immediate price shocks in energy markets around the globe, as well as, at least in Europe, a, a fundamental rethinking of, of energy strategy. So I'm interested in having a conversation about where you see the different elements of the scenarios, islands and waves and sky developing. But maybe a good place to start is to ask, do you see the events of the last six months pushing us in one direction or another in terms of the scenarios that your team has built? So on the 23rd of February, I would have told you that we are dominantly in the wave scenario with important components of both islands and sky also visible and also in, in play. 
But on the 23rd of February, my judgment would have been dominantly on waves because what we observed uh, in 2021 and also in early 2022 was uh, a historically unprecedented consumption wave. And it was not simply a massive consumer spending. Even today, you, know, you, you might remember in 2020, there were a lot of discussions of how people permanently changed uh, and how Zoom permanently replaced replace air travel. These days, you know, try booking an air ticket. Uh, so, you know, people want to fly, people want to travel, people want to go back to their own life, they want to enjoy it. And also, consumer expenditure shifted from the service sector to manufactured goods. So with a bit of a simplification, your favorite yoga club is still closed down because of lingering uh, coronavirus restrictions, so you order a new PlayStation on Amazon. Now, the interesting thing is that this consumer expenditure shift has been well documented by the macroeconomics community. So both the IMF and also the OECD was writing about it in their macroeconomic research, but the energy consequences were often underappreciated. Because when you click on that buy icon, instead of spending your money in the yoga club, then two things happen. Uh, one is that that gadget will be manufactured more often than not in Asia. So last year, the electricity consumption increase in the Chinese manufacturing sector, so the increase of electricity that the Chinese factories consume, was more than the entire British electricity system in just one year. Now, this is largely based on coal-fired electricity. So China literally started to run out of coal. The coal shortages in China created a very robust very priced inelastic demand for liquefied natural gas. In fact, one point when I was somewhat critical of the European energy policy discourse is uh, when the Chinese prime minister stated on the record in the Chinese media that I instructed our state-owned energy companies to procure the necessary LNG quantities at whatever price, I think the Europeans should have paid more attention. So the notion that in the in the fall and winter of 2021, LNG markets were already very tight and China kept buying LNG at very high prices, this shouldn't have been that surprising. And then, of course, the second thing that happens is that all that those gadgets will have to be delivered to the consumers. And one thing where we do see a probably permanent behavior shift is uh, home delivery. Services like Amazon Prime, are incredibly popular. As, uh, the, and as you deliver that gadget uh, from uh, the Asian manufacturing to the consumer, what you observed is that um, a year out from the coronavirus epidemic, container shipping, air cargo, highway diesel trucking were all significantly above the pre-epidemic level. So global oil demand has stayed below the pre-epidemic peak but that's dominantly because of the aviation sector. Now, the, the oil demand associated with logistics recovered beautifully. So in 2021 was actually a historical all-time peak of renewable deployment. Renewables had a really, really good year, but it was just swamped by the share volume of energy consumption increase, exactly as described in the wave scenario. So 2021 was a a 6% increase in global GDP with the recovery and a 6% increase in global carbon dioxide emissions with no improvement in the carbon intensity of the global economy at all. And that was primarily due to this, this massive volume of energy, energy consumption increase. Now, of course, we have seen also already in the 23rd of February, very important components of the sky scenario. The coronavirus epidemic was associated with a, with a sharp increase 
of both the bottom-up social concerns about climate change, so the various you know, NGO movements, student movements, investor movements, the bottom-up social concern about climate change bubbled up. And we also have seen a radicalization of the top-down climate policy. And I should not be unfair to governments because there is a significant policy gap. So when you take the when you take the stated policy ambition, which is very strongly which is very strongly emphasizing the 1.5 target, and you read the fine print of the actual legislation which is enacted in very various countries, there is a there is a significant gap. But even the actually enacted legislation has been strongly strengthened. So there have been a very strong intensification of top-down climate action, a very strong intensification of the bottom-up uh, social concerns. And we have also seen, uh, so we call it in the scenario, signals and signposts, uh, events which, which strongly signal that we, we might be going, going in the direction of one scenario or, not, or the, the other. What we have seen as an interesting signal and signpost is uh, an emerging private market for innovative solutions in hard to abate sectors over and above what the legally binding energy policy would envisage. So this would be things, uh, and, and Shell is involved in a number of strategic partnerships with Amazon on long-distance heavy-duty transport, uh, with Pepsi on sustainable plastics, uh, with, with Nestle on, on also on plastics and logistics, and so on. And so we have seen large conventional private corporations moving quite rapidly, and we have seen also an explosion of venture capital and innovation interest in clean energy technologies. So in, when you think about those technologies, you think about coalitions like came out of the Glasgow yeah. meeting, the First Movers Coalition, yes. where companies are making voluntary procurement yes. pledges for buying green steel, for buying clean hydrogen. You see, you know, in the United States, there was recently an announcement of uh, nearly a billion dollars pledged to purchase direct air capture or for procuring direct air capture uh, activity or credits, maybe. And all that is is sort of with a net zero emissions in mind, but no government policy driving the investment. Yes. We very much see the private sector, so both large corporations and also the finance sector from the venture capital uh, angle, emerging as an actor of its own. Now, it cannot fully substitute for top-down government policy. So, you know, I spent a decade from my life on the energy policy side, so the good old-school government-driven energy policy is still absolutely essential. But when, when you run the numbers, unless you take in extremely optimistic political assumptions, it's, it's difficult to see how the political conditions of a purely top-down, purely government-driven decarbonization would emerge as, uh, in, in the foreseeable future. But when I take the, in, the intensification and the improvement of government policy and combine it with the bottom-up social change and add the corporate sector activities, then you have a combination which is much more potent and much more powerful than ever before. Now, of course, on the 23rd of February, we also already saw signs of an island-style scenario emerging. Now, there was already, you know, the European gas markets, which is the eye of the storm, European gas markets were already on their stress in, so on the 23rd of February. Uh, of course, there was already a lively conversation about the US-China relationship on the 23rd of February. So this notion that the energy transition is not going to be unfolded in a, in a flowers in the hair, give peace a chance type world, but, but it, will, it will unfold in a world of geopolitical fissures and tensions. Uh, that was already quite visible uh, on the 23rd of February as well. Yeah, that's why you came up with an island scenario yes. anyway. So, but you know, you might say on the 23rd of February, from a climate perspective and a geopolitical perspective, you're feeling okay. 
some combination of sky and, and waves. And then what happens? So then came the Russian aggression, which of course is a human tragedy. And it also has absolutely non-trivial uh, energy implications mm. and highly asymmetrical energy implications because Russia plays a mission critical role in oil and gas. It is one of the largest oil producers, uh, one of the largest gas producers. And if I combine oil and gas, it is the largest hydrocarbon exporter. Saudi Arabia exports more oil, but Saudi Arabia doesn't export gas. So combined Russian oil and gas exports are the largest hydrocarbon export in the global economy. At the same time, apart from nickel mining, uh, Russia does not play a meaningful role in clean energy value chains. And I should emphasize that when the first Russian tanks crossed the border, the energy system was already out of equilibrium. And that was mainly due to the asymmetrical adjustment of the energy system. So basically, oil and gas upstream investment in the five years leading to February 23rd has been cut by half. And the remaining oil and gas upstream investment is actually quite in line with the residual oil and gas demand need of a decarbonizing world economy. So when you, when you run the numbers for a well below, do, well below two degrees climate stabilization, global oil demand we would have to peak tomorrow morning, gas a couple of years later, they don't disappear even in mid-century because of petrochemicals uh, and also the use of gas with carbon capture and storage, but both of them decline very, very significantly. But of course, if you just simply tell the industry to drop dead, then every annual production would decline by around 8 million barrels per day due to geological factors. Right. So even if you want to supply that declining oil and gas demand of a decarbonizing pathway, you still have to do capital investment around, around $400 billion per year. And that, as it happens, this is broadly the current upstream investment level. And this was, of course, partly due to the coronavirus shock, but also partly due to the very consistent investor expectation towards the oil and gas industry to adjust investment to the Paris Agreement. Now, so we had supply at a well below two degrees level, mm -hmm. and we had oil and gas demand very robustly recovering. Right. from the coronavirus shock. And also the clean energy investment part is somewhere around one third of what you would need to actually really cut oil and gas demand down. Right. So, so for example, when you run the numbers on how much oil you save with an electric car and what is the current speed of manufacturing of electric cars, Tesla is currently equivalent to an upstream activity of developing a 20,000 barrels per day field every year. Right. Uh, and you can you can run similar numbers for wind turbines, uh, your building retrofits, and so on. It's a small portion of West Tech. And it turns out that even the most successful clean energy technologies like wind and solar, the average annual deployment rate would have to be around two and a half, three times higher uh, than the previous historical peak in order to cut oil gas demand down really at the level, which is consistent with the energy transition trajectory. So there was already this tension in the energy system of the oil and gas industry cutting down investment, but clean energy investment struggling to ramp up. And this was not the problem of the access to capital. There's a very strong investor appetite for clean energy assets. It was much more of the stupid little things of permitting infrastructure access, contracting, various contractual and financial risks in, in, in different countries. So the type of things that you have to do you know, a lot of nitty gritty homework to address and improve. And so 2022 was already shaping up as a quite exciting year in global energy markets. Then came the Russian shock. Now, we observed that you know, the Russian aggression had extremely strong impact on, on European public opinion and on European consumer opinion. So essentially, 
what was quite interesting in the spring, that the private sector was running ahead of the formal geopolitical government decisions in terms of self-sanctioning. So large private sector companies, including Shell, quite quickly implemented quite stringent policies to stop buying Russian oil, to divest from Russia, to eliminate Russian hydrocarbons from the value chains. Now, it was also quite clear that this is not a free lunch. So in, in the case of Shell, we quite honestly also stated that we are going to constrain refinery operations uh, if necessary, because there is no guarantee that we can maintain the same level uh, of operations without Russian oil. But uh, there was no doubt in the company that we made the right choice. We felt that this was a situation when Shell has to take a rapid and very clear decision that certain things are just simply unacceptable. And then, and then in the Subsequent months, the formal government policies also tightened up, leading to a formal sanctions. Oil is a fungible commodity, so it is possible to take you know, Russian oil to Asia. And key Asian economies, which did not join the European and US sanctions, have increased their offtake of, of Russian crude oil. Mm-hmm. But the Russian infrastructure system, which exists towards East Siberia and Asia, is running flat out. Their biggest export outlet was Primorsk uh, in the Baltic Sea. Now, in the old days, it was Primorsk to Rotterdam, which is 2,000 kilometers shipping, going from Primorsk to the Asia-Pacific, uh, around Africa, uh, that's like 10 times more shipping. You have to reload it. And then the ship owners are reluctant to lease ships. Uh, the insurance companies are reluctant to insure. The banks are reluctant to provide trade finance. So oil is very often regarded as the microeconomically perfect market. But when you combine just, just the share volumes of the Russian oil that used to be exported, and you combine that with, with the logistical difficulties and the very strong, very pervasive rejection of the aggressive action that Russia has taken, it is almost certain that substantial quantities of Russian oil will stay underground. Now, different analysts come up with numbers between one to three million barrels per day, depending on what assumptions you take on how the big state-owned energy companies of Asia will behave and uh, how much insurance will be available and so on. But it's almost certain that there will be a substantial amount of Russian oil staying underground. Now, by contrast, Right. Gas is less of a globalized market. The trade in LNG is just more technically challenging. It's more expensive. And so one of the big events or one of the big trends that is following the Russian aggression is is Europe trying to move quickly away from from Russian gas consumption. Now, because of Europe's climate ambition, that was likely to happen over the coming decades anyhow. But now European governments have decided they want to do this really quickly. And part of the argument that they're making is that a shift to renewables, a shift to hydrogen, a lot of which they believe can be produced in Europe, actually improves energy security over time. So when you think about the scenarios that you've set up, right, you've got islands is focused on energy security. And one of the trends you identified is that there would be a lot more coal consumption. But how do you fit into that scenario the political arguments we see, well, actually producing power with solar panels and and rolling our own energy system is is going to be better for our country from a security perspective. So certainly you can see a very interesting dynamics uh, unfolding in Europe of renewables becoming at the heart of a national security conversation. Mm-hmm. So under normal circumstances, the Polish conservatives and the German Green Party are, are not natural allies. <laughs> and from everything from gay marriage to uh, immigrants, there tend to be lively conversations between them. But just this week, Shell issued a major bid in a Polish offshore wind tender, because where the Polish conservatives and the German Greens 100% agree in the current context, 
is the unique importance of building up renewable energy capacity in dealing with uh, this, uh, the geopolitical crisis. Now, there's one important thing, again, on the 23rd of February, I would have told you that the overwhelming majority of European renewable deployment will replace the decommissioning coal plants, will compensate for the phase out of nuclear in key European countries, and will compensate for the declining European gas production, which is falling like a brick irreversibly. But on the 23rd of February, I would have predicted you that there will not be much decline in European imports of Russian gas because uh, you know, renewable deployment has to run very fast just to stand still and compensate for the loss of domestic gas production, loss of coal, loss of nuclear. Uh, and we see an interesting dynamic unfolding that first of all, the renewable ambition was scaled up very significantly. And the European political decision makers put up some, some really eye-catching numbers of the renewable ambition. Now, in order to achieve that, you need three things. You need money. And that's, that's actually, I don't consider that to be a problem, because given the current European gas and electricity market situation, so in, in, in most electricity markets in Europe, gas is the marginal generator. So the gas crisis drove up European electricity prices also to a ridiculous level. I mean, every European wind turbine, every European solar panel is a money machine. So I don't see problems with the investor appetite. Now you need to have the kit and there is a problem. Right now, every modern wind turbine design has an at least two years waiting list. And, and when you read you know, the quarterly reports uh, of, of Vestas, of GE Wind or Siemens, you know, the, the big wind manufacturers, they, they are quite honestly talking about problems with chips uh, or with, with the key metals skilled labor, uh, and so on. So we are no longer, in, in macroeconomic terms, we are no longer in a Keynesian world where we would mobilize unused capacities uh, rapidly. No, we are in a neoclassical world mm -hmm. where we have to build in new value chains. Yeah, you have to build in new factories. You have to train new workers. Now, of course, that can lead to a transition which is macroeconomically enhancing, but it's a non-trivial effort for industrial policy and it requires a good cooperation between the industry and private sector. And then after you have the kit, you also have to have the workers. And that, one of the things that my colleagues are working hard on is that uh, for example, a 100 kilowatt capacity electric car charger. I mean, that, that's a heavy duty equipment. You need a trained electrotechnician to install it. And in many regions, it's, it's not easy to find the people with the proper skill set. And last but not least, you need to have a legal permission to build it. And that, I have to say, one of the points when I've been very critical of the green movement is this concept of small is beautiful. Now, when you run the numbers for the energy consumption of a modern industrialized society, even after the most stringent energy efficiency efforts, this is not going to be small explosive. This is going to be heavy gear. It's going to be you know, thousands and thousands of uh, wind turbines, which are a 100 meter size steel structure each, and millions and millions of solar panels, uh, and thousands and thousands of electric car chargers, and, and so on. Uh, we will need a, a, a legal environment in which uh, this stuff can be built smoothly. So one of the things that actually is kind of most interesting to me when I look at the European case in particular is that it's not clear to me if you looked at European decarbonization goals, you weren't going to have to have this conversation anyway around yes. how do we speed the deployment of these things, both in developing the kit and in creating a structure, a government structure by which you can actually cite permit and build this kind of infrastructure. Yes. It's just now the conversation is being forced, not just by the climate imperative, by an energy security imperative. Yes. Yes. And that that might actually help resolve what would otherwise be lasting and perhaps permanent tension. No, exactly. Exactly. So it was very much reinforced. 
Now, there are, there are also shifts, because I mentioned in the absence of the geopolitical shock, a substantial proportion of, these, uh, of the renewable diplomat would have replaced coal and would have replaced nuclear. Now, of course, coal and nuclear are on the opposite end of the carbon spectrum. N- nuclear is actually a low-carbon technology, so there's a really bizarre debate in Brussels of whether nuclear can be accepted as a climate solution, which is basically debating high school physics. Coal is high carbon, but coal does play a role in energy security. Right. Now, we have seen now European governments are willing to make temporary compromises on coal. So nobody is thinking about building new coal plants in Europe. That's that's absolutely off the agenda. But the decommissioning schedule of coal was shifted. Uh, and, and basically, European governments seem to be comfortable allowing a bit more leeway for coal to stay alive uh, and help getting through this crisis. And we have also seen a significant shift in the conversations uh, on nuclear, not in Germany. So in the Germany is proceeding with the phase out, but we have seen both the Netherlands and Belgium changing their mind. And I consider Belgium an interesting example because in Belgium, the energy ministry is run by the the Belgian Green Party. And of course, personally, I've been always pro-nuclear, but I acknowledge that for a Green Party energy minister to make a pro-nuclear decision, that that, that was real leadership. That that basically was a reflection that a nuclear phase-out in the current security situation is not a right decision. So, So the Netherlands, Belgium changed their mind. And we have also seen, you know, the countries like the United Kingdom, France, which deep in their heart, they were always pro-nuclear, but they were a bit shy about it. We have seen, you know, both the British and the French government to be much more outspoken that this is it, nuclear is here to stay, we will continue to develop it. So we have seen the shifts on those two technologies. And of course, the nuclear decisions overall help the energy transition. Right. Uh, the coal decisions are a temporary hiccup, but that's a price that European governments are willing to pay. You know, one thing I'm also interested in watching immediately after Russian aggression in Ukraine began, the EU worked with the Ukrainian grid authority to integrate the Ukrainian grid with the European grid. This was planned to happen, but it happened very rap- much more rapidly than, than people might have expected or were planning for. And Ukraine is actually a, a large producer of nuclear power and it has some several famous stations now. But it's, it'll be interesting to watch the role that nuclear plays as, as integration with Ukraine continues. So one of the interesting impressions that I had here in Washington as uh, returning after 2019 is that here in Washington as well, you know, the, the conversation about nuclear uh, is noticeably different than it was a couple of years ago. There's a much stronger recognition of the key role that the existing nuclear fleet of the United States plays. And there's a much more optimism about nuclear innovation. Yeah, I think that's correct. We've seen a lot of policy support, both for the existing fleet and keeping it going amidst challenging market conditions, as well as fairly high degree of investment in new nuclear technology. I'd like to close to think a little bit more about the future and the role of scenarios when we think about how the energy system will continue to evolve given all these dynamics. You know, you see in the present situation shades of each of these scenarios that you've described. Energy security seems to be back on the map, at least for a, a lot of countries. Yet you could still see a lot of points where cooperation is going to be both needed and very helpful, right? So an example would be the U.S. and the Europe working together to, to deliver more LNG from the U.S. into Europe over the next decade, where both countries have pretty strong goals for upstream methane emissions. And that could you know help LNG live up to its potential, both as a climate solution and energy security tool. So, you know, how do you think about the sort of next generation of scenarios, given the world that we're entering? And what are the key factors so, that we need to look at now? So one very important question is uh, how do you reconcile 
the medium term investment need uh, for energy security with the energy transition. And there, right now, both in Washington and also in European capitals, a company like Shell would, he- would, would hear a very, a, a very strong political message to build new LNG and start construction tomorrow morning. And of course, Shell is investing in LNG, uh, but we are also very far mindful of the uh, mindful of the fact that this is 2022. And for a 2050 uh, for a 2050 net zero target, when we model, when you model back by 2040 latest, the, the transition will have profound impacts on international gas markets, and that's only 18 years from now. Now, Shell's technology team developed you know, half a dozen potential technology pathways to turn to turn an LNG facility into a net zero emissions asset. All all of this involve a combination of hydrogen and carbon capture and storage, one way or the other. But without the political acceptance of those technologies, it's extremely risky to invest in a new LNG project. So. One of the things where, where more strategic thinking is still required is uh, what will be the role of hydrogen? What will be the political acceptance of carbon capture and storage? Will I be able to turn this LNG project into a net zero asset right. as in 2040? And there is currently a dynamic inconsistency in the policy. So this is, this is one very important topic. Another very important topic uh, is basically the global implications of the European crisis management, because it takes you know three to four years to build a new LNG facility. Mm-hmm. We know exactly how much LNG will be available uh, in the next three years from the production schedules. Uh, we know the ceiling, and of course, if you have accidents like the Freeport terminal, that's, that's a downside. But we know that we are not going to have more than a certain amount of LNG available. Right. So if the Europeans buy more, everybody else has to buy less. Yes. And we already see some of the some undesirable side effects unfolding. In the first quarter of 2022, in just one quarter, Chinese domestic coal mining increased in energy terms by more than Shell's entire oil and gas production. So if we had shut down Shell in the 1st of January, which some of our friends in the NGO community would like, Chinese domestic coal mining already added more energy. Now, China is still taking delivery of their long-term contracts. Mm-hmm. But they very much adjusted their spot purchases as, as a result of skyrocketing prices. But we have also seen the example of uh, Pakistan, where Europe-based trading companies defaulted on a long-term contract, because even after paying the contractual penalty, it was cheaper to default and take the gas to Europe. Yes. Now, Pakistan suffered an energy crisis. Several thousand people lost their job as the factories remained without energy. Pakistan also has five major coal projects under development, all financed by China's Belt and Road Initiative. And, and I think it's a very interesting question for Europeans that, you know, a couple of months from now, we are going to go to a climate summit where the Europeans will try to convince the Pakistani prime minister to cancel those coal projects. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be an easy conversation. So we have seen very undesirable global side effects. And essentially, how do, how do we deal with coal in Asia? That's still a big scenario question. And last but not least, of course, why Russia plays a critically important role in oil and gas, but not in the clean energy value chains. In the case of China, it is exactly the opposite. It is 75% of global solar panel manufacturing, around 75% of electric car battery manufacturing, unique capabilities in building high voltage transmission lines, strong efforts ongoing on, on green hydrogen also in China, a rapidly increasing proportion of the Belt and Road energy investment is related to clean energy, a combination of hydropower, solar, electricity network. While uh, so far this week in Washington, I haven't met a single per- anyone who was optimistic about a quick happy end in the US-China relations. So how China's genuinely impressive technological and project management capabilities will play in the energy con- uh, transition in a real-life geopolitical context, that is still a very big open question. 
Yeah, I agree. I think that that some combination of your second and third considerations are something we've been thinking a lot about here at CSIS. If the European energy market is just going to hoover up a lot of global LNG, you know, 87% increase in power prices in Pakistan causing energy crises, never mind two years from now, maybe a cold winter in Japan or something like that. We're going to need to have a better model for helping developing countries. And I think this is a place where the U.S. and Europe can work together to start meeting some of the clean energy finance gap, which we were discussing earlier in our conversation, right? If we need to move from a world that is primarily capitalizing oil and and gas production to one that is doing much more to capitalize clean energy infrastructure, we're going to need to make sure that 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 is a a globally equitable conversation and that that private markets and private capital are able to enter more effectively into such arrangements. So so I have very little doubt that new LNG facilities will be needed. And of course, the United States is going to be one of the hotspots of it. But I, I also have no doubt that there is also a need for an all of the above technology package, which can turn those new LNG facilities into zero carbon assets as the transition unfolds. Very interesting. Lazo, I'm glad you made it back to Washington. I really enjoyed our conversation today. So thank you so much for coming by CSIS. Thanks to Lazo for joining the podcast this week. We have included a link in the description to the Shell scenarios and encourage you to take a moment to check them out. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.